Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. We are delighted that you've joined us this morning. I am joined this morning by guest co-host, Lawanda Holloman. Welcome to you, Lawanda. Good morning. Good morning. I'm delighted to have you here. I am so pleased this morning to be able to share a resource for those with epilepsy or seizure disorders. Months ago, I was making a video for veteran caregiver about the heightened risk of seizures with a TBI or a penetrating TBI, and I was introduced to our guest today. Um, He's a professor of neurology and the director of the Maryland Epilepsy Center, and I learned more about the Epilepsy Center of Excellence. And we are going to have a really interesting conversation today with Dr. Crumholz about epilepsy, about seizures, what does trauma do with seizures, and what are the VA Epilepsy Centers of Excellence. So without further ado, I would love to welcome Dr. Alan Crumholz to our program. Welcome to Military Network Radio this morning. Uh, Thank you very much, Linda. It's a delight to have you here. You and I have spoken a number of times, but I think it would help our listeners if you could give a little background on your role at the Maryland Center for Epilepsy and how you came to be part of this larger Epilepsy Center of Excellence uh, centers. Well, I'm a neurologist here in in Baltimore, and uh, I'm a specialist in, in epilepsy care. Uh, I am the uh, director of the uh, Baltimore VA uh, Epilepsy Center of Excellence, which is one of 15 epilepsy centers of excellence throughout the country that was established by the VA throughout the country to provide uh, uh, special services or more uh, expert types of services to veterans with epilepsy throughout uh, the country. We're just one of the sites. We're, there are three sites in the Northeast region. There's our site here in Baltimore. There's one in um, West Haven, uh, Connecticut, and one in Richmond, Virginia. And there are sites like ours uh, throughout the country. The, the country, uh, the VA has divided the country up into four regions, the Northeast, the Southeast, the uh, uh, Northwest, and the Southwest. And again, there are about 14 special sites, in addition to which there are many sites within what we call a consortium, which are uh, interested sites or sites that also have resources that might not quite be as uh, sophisticated as our sites. And these uh, centers of excellence were developed or actually were established, I think back in 2009, by um, an act of Congress, actually, uh, which which, uh, promoted or encouraged the VA to uh, develop these uh, special sites for care for individuals with uh, with epilepsy, recognizing that epilepsy was a big problem for veterans and that the VA really needed to give it a a lot of attention. The VA uh, adopted that program and has uh, established these sites and now has separately uh, funded and maintained these sites as part of uh, its own 
program. So it's uh, it's a program that uh, has been was funded initially with about uh, $6 million and uh, continues to be supported through the VA and uh, is really, uh, I think, mainly a resource for our veterans in the military who have issues with epilepsy for their families and who uh, who really want to know more about uh, this very serious disorder and, and, and what the VA and what the medical system can offer for it, which is considerable. It is considerable, and I, I think that you know, I mentioned creating the video. There are a lot of people who weren't aware of this wonderful center and the services that could be offered, which is one of the reasons we asked you to talk on our program today, because I think that epilepsy is one of the more frightening things, or seizure disorders in general, because they seemingly come on without warning. Um, And perhaps you can speak to that in terms of how many veterans are we talking about or service members who are suffering from epilepsy or seizure disorders? Well, that's that's been rather surprising that there are so many uh, veterans that are affected by seizures and epilepsy. Um, and part of the reason is that um, to to enter the military service, if you've had seizures beyond your childhood years, if you have epilepsy or seizures, you're really not uh, eligible for entry into the military. Mm-hmm. So it's a little surprising that uh, there are so many veterans with epilepsy, but um, there there are reasons for that. We, when the epilepsy centers were were, uh, were established, uh, actually we looked at this, and there are about eighty thousand um, veterans within the VA system uh, uh, with epilepsy, which which is which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I think that the uh, the the reason for that is, is several reasons. First of all, I think that um, epilepsy can develop later in life. There are two sort of peaks in which it develops. It develops very early in life in children and, and newborns and, and young children. But then it also develops uh, much later in life. As people get older, they develop other problems, strokes, uh, uh, dementia, uh, things like Alzheimer's disease, and epilepsy is also associated with that. And finally, unfortunately, we, we have the problem that uh, uh, veterans in combat, the veterans that have had head injuries mm-hmm. and things of that nature, are also much more prone to epilepsy. And, and I think the other consideration is we have very active veterans. Our veterans are, you know, ride bi- bikes, uh, motorcycles. They uh, are very active in sports. They're very active in other activities. And they uh, suffer head injuries. And uh, head injuries uh, outside of the military are also uh, major factors in, in, in developing uh, seizures and epilepsy. And, and these are, uh, unfortunately, pretty common problems. About 10% of the general population may be expected to have a seizure sometime in their lives. Many of those are young children, but later in life, people can also uh, develop epilepsy or uh, develop seizures. A person who has recurrent seizures, if a person has had more than one seizure or has a high risk for recurrent seizures, that's what we we call epilepsy. It's a disorder of the brain characterized by recurrent seizures. And and as as, uh, you're well aware, Seizures are, are really devastating problems. They're, they're things that uh, occur rarely, uh, even maybe in some patients, once a year or once every couple of years. But if you've had an alteration of consciousness with a seizure, if you've lost consciousness, the effects can be pretty devastating. Uh, you may not be allowed to drive for a period of time until you mm-hmm. can show that you're uh, able to have your seizures controlled. If you're, uh, if you're in uh, law enforcement or if you're a truck driver, you may not be able to work because of uh, these seizures because they impair your ability to function uh, fully. 
Absolutely. And uh, if you could speak more to the TBIs, because I know that there is a great deal of concern among those who are caring for those with uh, traumatic brain injuries, specifically where it seems to be a heightened risk, and we can get into more of this later, it appears to be, and please speak to this, that penetrating TBIs have a heightened risk of seizure disorders. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it is, uh, and, and that's uh, particularly a reason why this is a big problem for our, our combat veterans. Uh, that uh, uh, again, the, the more ser- the more severe the brain injury, the more serious the brain injury, the more likely one is to have uh, epilepsy. There, there are two times when seizures can occur after a head injury. One is immediately with a head injury. So this is sort of similar to uh, athletes who may be um, uh, at a sporting event and they get a head injury and then they fall down and they may actually have a seizure uh, mm-hmm. as they fall down. And that's that's an early seizure. And most of those seizures aren't associated with the development of chronic epilepsy. And, and those are seizures that occur usually within the first week or two of a head injury. But if a person experiences a uh, head injury uh, or a seizure a few weeks, a few months, or a few years after a, a serious uh, head injury, then uh, if they have seizures at that time, then they're much more likely to develop a, a chronic problem with epilepsy. And the ones that are, are, are most likely to develop uh, seizures in epilepsy are the individuals who've had penetrating uh, head injuries, uh, bullet wounds, uh, shrapnel, things of that nature. What we don't know, and what we're very interested in studying and learning about about more in um, in epilepsy care, and I will say that the epilepsy centers of excellence are very also very involved in in research in epilepsy, not only treating epilepsy but also very much in trying to prevent epilepsy. What we really don't know is is what the effects are going to be long term for the most common injury that are now seen in uh, in in in, cur- in the current. Uh, uh, um, uh, conflicts that were involved with in the Middle East and and such, and those are blast injuries. Blast injuries are different kinds of injuries. They're uh, they're kind of new to warfare, where most of our veterans are now who are injured are injured in blast injuries rather than necessarily uh, bullet wound injuries, although those also occur. But um, it, it's not clear exactly what the effects will be, although we suspect that they'll be very similar. To, uh, to the uh, serious uh, head injuries and even penetrating head injuries. So we're concerned about that, and, and uh, we'll have to see how that, uh, how that evolves. Right. Just for our listeners' sake, um, when you're talking about the blast injuries, are you talking about the fact that there's an initial brain injury with the blast, and then there is a secondary injury as the brain swells within the hard skull? Is that what you're talking about in terms of blast injuries and the difficulty with them? Uh, yes, exactly. You know, I, I think the, the these are injuries that we really don't fully understand, but they're they're very very common. These uh, you know various devices that uh, uh, will suddenly blow up, and depending on whether you're very close to it or very far from it, it it's not really clear how that's going to affect the individual. Now, some of that is is sort of if something goes flying with shrapnel and. and penetrates the brain. That's one kind of an injury. But the other kind of injury seems to be that there's an increase in pressure uh, mm-hmm. and and pressure in the brain, and the brain then swells, and then you get secondary changes in the brain, and, and those themselves can be quite uh, devastating. We really don't know exactly um, how serious those problems will be, not just for the veterans who are in the immediate site of the blast injury, but 
you know, even the ones that are a little bit further away from it. And that's something that we're we're trying to understand and trying to study and and get a better sense of. Uh, I think uh, the Department of Defense and the Veterans Administration are all very much uh, um, concerned about this and, and right. how it's going to affect our veterans. Perfect. We have to go on a short break. We will continue with our discussion. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we will be right back after these short messages. We are here with Dr. Alan Crumholz of the Maryland Center for Epilepsy. Hi, all military moms, dads, and grandparents. This is Linda Crater at Military Network Radio. In a military family, everyone serves, and we know how hard you work to provide a great education for your military kids. K-12 believes each child is uniquely brilliant. So to prepare them for college and success beyond high school, they deserve an education designed just for them. Learn more at k12.com forward slash grade about enrolling. A child's brilliance comes in many forms. Some are curious, others inventive, some analytical. K-12 is a full-time, tuition-free online option to traditional public school. Taught by state-certified teachers, schools powered by K-12 provide an individualized education, enhancing your child's ability to succeed. K-12 programs teach, too, and embrace your child's unique brilliance. Students from K-12-powered schools go on to fine colleges and universities, enhancing their ability to succeed. Join the community of military families who have succeeded with a tuition-free online K-12 education. K-12 welcomes students for grades K through 12. Visit k12.com forward slash grade or call 855-628-9531 for more information about enrolling. That's k12.com forward slash grade. Secret Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom, ingenuity, and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures to her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons. Her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. You hear about the hound dog that participated in a 13-mile race in Elkmont, Alabama? According to Runner's World, the two-and-a-half-year-old hound dog named Ludivine was just horb-gorbling in her backyard when she heard the runners lining up for the trackless train track half marathon in the distance. Somehow, she found her way to the starting line and began sprinting alongside the other runners. According to Keith Henry, the winner of the race, Ludivine cut in front of him and the other runners several times. They had to be careful not to trip over the pooch. 
As it turned out, Ludovine crossed the finish line in seventh place with a time of one hour and 33 minutes. According to her owner, that was a pretty impressive showing for a normally Scabberlacher dog. Scabberlacher is another word for lazy. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're here with Dr. Alan Kramholz of the Epilepsy Center of Excellence. And we are also here with his assistant, Regina, who is really valuable in terms of liaising between the veteran and their caregiver and the family and bringing people into the center of excellence. I would like to ask a broad question of both of you. You can either take this question. And that is that when people are unaware of a resource such as this, one of the reasons we're doing this program today is to make sure that they do know about it. And what type of patient generally presents to you? Are they just hearing about it and they come to you? Are they referred as they become wounded in the battlefield and they come into an intake hospital? Or is this more once they're stabilized and back in the community? We're just curious as to when you're um, seeing these service members and veterans come to you. Yes, Linda, that's a a really good question. And uh, I'll turn it over to Regina. Regina, this is Regina McGuire is our our nurse practitioner here at the uh, Baltimore VA uh, Epilepsy Center of Excellence. And and very honestly, uh, she's the one that does 99% of the interactions with the family and with the patients. I I would say that a lot of these interactions are also with the family. Um, We uh, get veterans both when they uh, are first injured, once they they, uh, come over back to the United States, there's a... uh, there are uh, polytrauma centers in Richmond and uh, throughout uh, the country. I think there's one in Austin, Texas, and uh, and others as well. Mm-hmm. And those veterans are in the hospital uh, and, and very carefully evaluated. In fact, there are programs, particularly in Richmond, that uh, one of our my colleagues, Alan Town, runs where they actually screen these veterans very carefully for the possibility that they may be having seizures that they don't even recognize. So particularly with the combat veterans, we're, we're, we really do, uh, uh, the veterans that have been in combat and have had injuries, we really screen those people pretty carefully. But that there are a whole group of other individuals who are already out in the community, um, aren't necessarily victims of, of head injuries, uh, but uh, may develop seizures for other reasons. Uh, they're referring physicians uh, are often the ones that will first refer them to a center like ours because we are more specialized and we provide support not only for the patients and their families, but also for the uh, uh, physicians. And uh, Regina uh, can tell you more about some of our uh, difficult situations. But that would be Regina, great, Regina. Thank you. I'm sorry I misidentified you when we came in. Welcome. That's okay. Thank you. Um, so you we do get a lot of referrals from outside physicians, and sometimes we've seen patients who have had epilepsy or had seizures for a while and, you know, are more difficult to manage. Um, we rely a lot on the families as well to try to help us coordinate care and take care of everybody and then bring them in, try to determine what type of seizures they have and what's the best treatment for them, be it different medication options or, you know, other options, surgery, um, and then just work closely with the families 
as well as the veterans, and a lot of them have um, memory issues that, you know, don't cognitively impair them greatly, but sometimes impair their day-to-day, you know, working or helping Mm -hmm. them remember to take medications, just trying to find all different resources to aid the veterans to be able to live the natural life and to be able to to live, you know, a normal life, you know, like everybody else, be able to Mm -hmm. go to work or, you know, attend programs, attend school, and then adjust their either medications or their treatments around that to make them successful. That's terrific. I I know that I have spoken with one family in particular who was really afraid in the beginning. Uh, These were unexplained seizures. They would come on rapidly. And they were unfortunately in an area that was far away from a treatment center. And so it took them some time to find care. They in turn went and received a seizure sensing uh, service dog. And that was very instrumental and eventually got them to the care they needed. What do you suggest for veterans or service members who are are showing what, as you said, may not be a recognizable seizure, um, but something's wrong and they need help? How can they learn to, can they ask or request uh, being seen at one of the epilepsy centers? Is that a possibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that's, we now have information on our website, not only with the Epilepsy Center of Excellence, but also with the Veterans Affairs website um, for referrals and how to contact. Um, our epilepsy website is the epilepsy.va.gov, mm-hmm. um, and it has a lot of information, a lot of resources. Um, they certainly can ask their provider. They can ask anybody. They can, you know, call in to our phone number, and we can help them figure out how to get you know, the referral to us or be able to be seen by us. Um, we're also trying to streamline our care here in the epilepsy clinics to try to have more of a continuity clinic so that they're seeing the same provider over and over again so that they get more um, continuity of care and better follow or not better, but more consistent follow-up. And, and I would add that we, um, at the VA Epilepsy Centers of Excellence, we, we don't see ourselves just as, as service providers, but we really uh, see our role as um, uh, educators and information providers. Mm-hmm. It's really important that uh, people who have a question of seizures or think they might have seizures or have problems with them realize that this is a resource that, that we can provide, and, and, and it's, uh, it's readily available. We spend a lot of our uh, time and effort on communicating with people, so we're really uh, excited that that you've contacted us and that we can uh, provide this uh, information to to veterans and their uh, their 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 caregivers because uh, people really don't know that much about these resources. I think one thing the Veterans Administration is is perhaps not as good as 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 it is in other way in other things is to promote some of the the services that it has. And in fact, just to give you some stories of of specific patients. Uh, these aren't necessarily only patients who um, uh, are within the VA, but we've had uh, uh, people who have come to us who have been seen by outside physicians and outside doctors and uh, uh, come to the VA as, as, as another resource of care and, and turn out to have uh, conditions that we can help them with a lot. <clears throat> and Regina and I have recently been working with uh, a couple of families, one, uh, a, young, a young woman who I, I think was... Uh, a veteran who um, developed uh, seizures for unknown reasons that uh, we weren't, and, and at some point it wasn't really clear what kinds of seizures she had. She struggled with various different medications. I think her husband is a veteran also, or they're, mm-hmm. they're 
military family and uh, really struggled with, with what to do about this. I think they were referred from, uh, I forget where they came from, Philadelphia, do you remember? Uh, Wilmington, I believe. Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, they came up to us, and we initially saw her confirm that she indeed uh, did have epilepsy. What we often will do is if we're not sure what a person has, they're having lapses or spells, and we're not sure what they are, we can do certain tests, such as a brainwave test or an EEG test. Sometimes the patient has to be actually admitted to the hospital for what we call epilepsy monitoring, and we did this with this uh, young woman and her family uh, or with similar patients where the patient will be brought into the hospital. While here, we actually try to capture their seizures while they're on a machine that allows us to record their seizures mm-hmm. and the brain activity. And when, if we can pinpoint where the seizures are coming from, then we can sometimes actually remove that part of the brain surgically and cure the seizures in maybe 60 or 80% of the patients, which is, which is really wonderful. And I think she is someone who uh, is a potential surgical candidate. Regina, you want to say more about it? You, you know her better than I do. Yeah, we're in I, the have, process. I have a quick question for, uh, for both of you um, because it just brings up this curiosity in me um, that I didn't know. I'm a veteran, and I uh, did not know uh, much about these centers, of course, until um, you came on the show and I got a little information beforehand. But I'm curious about some of the forums that you're able to get out to to communicate that these services are available outside of your normal channels, perhaps. Um, And if you were the king and queen for the day, where would you go and um, scream about these um, services from the rooftops? Well, I think that's a that's a tough question. We've we've uh, we put out information. There are uh, videos. I, I think there are uh, there on um, uh, what's the uh, YouTube on YouTube. They're, they're YouTube they're on videos. YouTube. Mm-hmm. I think you can just uh, look for those. We're, uh, we're we hope to be putting out a whole series of videos. Uh, the uh, the VA uh, is uh, screening those videos. They were prepared uh, a while back, but. Um, uh, if you know the VA, you know it doesn't always move as quickly as as other uh, organizations. But uh, we're working on it, and we hope to have those out. But I think what's important is that we do have this uh, this uh, this site, this uh, uh, epilepsy.va.gov, which is a good resource. And then it's just uh, worth. Uh, and I, but I think you're right that we we really don't have this information out there. Uh, as well as it, it could be. We try to work through physicians as much as we can. We have brochures and all the rest, but it, it's hard to disseminate these. We, we, we do this as best we can, and we hope that the, the Veterans Administration and organizations like yours will help us get this information out there because uh, these are services that uh, veterans were lacking. They were a little bit behind uh, uh, in, in getting these services in the uh, United States today, the standard of care is pretty high for people with epilepsy. And unfortunately, prior to about nineteen, about 2009, the Veterans Administration had fallen a bit behind in terms of providing these services to their veterans. And a lot of these patients had to go, or veterans had to go out of uh, outside of the VA to get the right. kind of care that, that we thought they needed. But now this care is available at the VA, and uh, it's, uh, we hope that it's, it's excellent and uh, we want to see that continue. But um, uh, unfortunately, it, that information isn't getting out across the VA, and many veterans, I think, are still uh, getting these uh, services from, uh, 
resources outside of the VA when we think that uh, um, they should know about these? Regina, you agree? Yes, and we also work um, a lot with the Epilepsy Foundation. They help us um, advertise and get information out. Um, and we're starting to do some telehealth and also um, telemedicine to try to get information out to primary care physicians who either are at some of the faraway places like uh, Cumberland. Regina, or- I'm sorry. I'm going to have to cut you off. We're going on another short break. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. News Daily reported a story from Career Builder that gave some humorous examples of actual job interview blunders. One Boris Norris candidate decided to take off his shoes during the interview. Probably not the best idea, even if you don't have smelly feet or podobromhidrosis. Another job applicant brought a how-to-interview book with him to the interview. Then he asked, what company is this again? And my favorite, the candidate who asked for a sip of the interviewer's coffee. That won't cause a latte problems, and also it's a bit bumptious. And finally, one job applicant asked the interviewer if they could wrap it up quickly, because he had another appointment. And a special thanks to our armed forces, men and women serving at home and abroad. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Are you ready to start rocking that woo-hoo that only you do? Because Lisa Stedman is on a mission. She will dare you, challenge you, enlighten you, provoke and empower you to bring out that Lisa is an internationally acclaimed best-selling author. She's a breakup expert, a brand consultant, CEO of WooHoo Inc., and the WooHoo Radio Network. She will show you how to take your boohoo and turn it into woohoo. Get rebellious and get real. Get your dreams off the back burner. Get inspired and motivated to take action. Start rocking that woohoo that only you do in love, life, and business. She is going to be here for you every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion about epilepsy, seizure disorders, and the Epilepsy Centers of Excellence. On the break, we were talking briefly about the fact that um, I've talked to many military families and veteran families who aren't sure that they are looking for epilepsy. They may notice what you called earlier the lapses and spells, and they're concerned when they can't explain it properly or don't know what that may indicate in terms of brain activity and where to go and seek help, they may not know how to ask the right questions. And in turn, that now causes distress within the family, which brings on an accompanying problem, which is lessening uh, positive mental health. And so it gets to be a vicious circle. So can you speak a bit about what does... Um, the lap- what do the lapses and spells look like 
uh, to either the caregiver or the veteran service member? And how can they direct their questions in a way that will elicit the right response from the VA or their care provider to point them in the right direction if this isn't a full-blown, readily diagnosable epilepsy situation? That's that's really an excellent question. Let me get started and and try and answer it. Uh, Seizures, there are different types of seizures. The, The two major kinds of seizures are what we call convulsive seizures, and those are the most dramatic and most severe. That's when a patient usually collapses and shakes all over. They may bite their tongue. They may lose control of their urine. Those are what we call uh, generalized tonic-clonic or convulsive seizures. Those are pretty easy to, to, to diagnose and recognize, and that's the most severe form of epilepsy, but that really isn't the uh, most common form of epilepsy. The most common form of epilepsy are uh, other spells in which a person loses awareness, they may lose some time, they just may lose uh, uh, consciousness for a period of time. Uh, if one is observing them, they may look like they're chewing and smacking their lips, they just may be unresponsive. Uh, often people will... Uh, move from one type of seizure into another type of seizure. They may start with that kind of confusion and then go on into a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. But these uh, lapses can be hard to diagnose and, and hard to uh, to uh, determine exactly, and it may be hard to determine exactly what they are. And it's particularly difficult because after head injuries, such as uh, people who've had combat head injuries, People have other lapses. They may have lapses in memory, may have lapses in awareness, and it's sometimes hard to tell whether or not they have epilepsy. So to to tell whether a person is having epilepsy or not, I think it's really important to talk with one's medical provider, physician, or nurse practitioner, explain what the symptoms are, and then allow the practitioner, the family members can help as well, to, to look into other things that can help determine whether or not this is epilepsy. Sometimes just the the history will help. What can be helpful if this is a family member, we've been encouraging this lately with the availability of cell phones, if a family member can just take a video with their cell phone of the event as it's going on and Mm -hmm. bring it to the provider, that can be very useful. What we will then do is then do other tests such as brainwave tests or scanning tests of the brain to really determine is this epilepsy or is this something else because there are other things, uh, other mental health problems that can uh, be confused with uh, epilepsy and uh, epilepsy itself can cause mental health issues. So I'm sure Regina has uh, seen many patients who who didn't know that they had epilepsy uh, or may have thought that they had epilepsy and wound up having something else. That's a big part of what we do. We kind of we kind of try to sift through this for, mm-hmm. for patients, their families, and providers. You know, and we, we also- do have um, Brian Farkas has joined us. Brian is a veteran. Brian, can you hear us? Yes. Wonderful. Um, would you like to share your story with uh, our listeners and your experience at uh, the Epilepsy Center? Uh, sure. Um, well, as you said, I'm a veteran of uh, Desert Storm. Okay. Um, I uh, let's see. I, I received. Uh, actually, I didn't. I didn't even know. Uh, let's put it that way, that I had received any kind of real brain injury um, until I got back uh, stateside and was discharged. Mm-hmm. And almost uh, a week after was discharged, um, I had my first uh, seizure. 
riding in a car. Fortunately, I was riding mm-hmm. with a buddy of mine, and I had a uh, uh, one of the uh, traumatic convulsive seizures. Um, I then uh, went to the VA and said, hey, you know, what's this? And um, they were like, uh, well, if it's a seizure, then, you know, we need to hook you up with a neurologist, and the neurologist needs to run tests. They did all that good stuff, but they did do it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they found a lesion in the back of my brain, uh, and they simply assumed that that's what it was. And for about 20 years, <clears throat> that's what we all thought it was. Um, most of the time I had the, uh, the convulsive seizures and it was while sleeping. Mm. Uh, I didn't, yeah, I, I only had like, uh, maybe three that we were aware of where I was awake, uh, because they were always convulsive. Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't until we got to uh, just recently to the uh, Baltimore Epilepsy uh, Clinic that we even found out that, first of all, that lesion has nothing to do with it. And uh, second of all, that uh, I have uh, the waves going all the time. Like right now as I'm speaking to you, so I can immediately go into a, a seizure right now. Um, so at the little... center, um, it sounds to me like they were able to really dig down and diagnose something that others had perhaps not seen or it hadn't developed properly at that point for them to be able to diagnose it. So you got specialty care there is what I'm hearing. Oh, yes, definitely. They, they were, uh, they were incredible. Uh, I stayed there for, a uh, over a week, well, a week mm-hmm. and, uh, they hooked me up to uh, an EEG and uh, um, and uh, monitored me all day and night. I had uh, two. Um, I had two two seizures while I was there, and uh, I'm aware of. I may have had more. I'm not positive. You would have to ask. Re- Regina, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but two major ones that I know of, and uh, yes, they were they were able to determine that it wasn't from this lesion in the back of my brain. That's actually coming from they they're pretty sure from the right frontal lobe, but at the same time, that could spread and come from the left frontal lobe. Um, not, that's how I'm determined or how, how I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they it's want- funny. I think what we, we all know is that the brain is a very complex organ and that so oh, yeah. much can go wrong and, or, and right. So much can go right. And so much can return to right with the proper care. As you're looking at, uh, these cases, um, Dr. Krumholz, do you find that once you have a, a patient coming in, looking and seeking care, that the follow-up is so much simpler because finally there's an answer to those questions of what is it? I mean, Brian's talking about living with his lesion for 20 years and then finding help. So 
can you talk a little bit about how you dig down into the mystery of the brain and diagnose these uh, conditions? Well, as we said, there are various kinds of epilepsy, mm-hmm. and um, one of the, the good things about epilepsy is that we really can do a lot for it. Um, I would say in about 60 or 70% of people who have seizures and epilepsy, we can cure the epilepsy. That means make it go away completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, a person won't have any seizures. Uh, and that's either through medications or, if necessary, surgery. Now, again, that's saying 60 to 70% can be cured. Unfortunately, that means that about 30% will continue to have seizures. And unfortunately, I think Brian uh, was one of the, the 30% that, that couldn't be cured with, with regular medications. Uh, so what we did is we brought him in and we reevaluated his seizures, first of all, to make sure that he actually had seizures mm-hmm. and didn't have something different that needed other kind of treatment. And then number two, to see whether his medications are optimal for him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I wasn't involved with Brian's uh, care here. I think uh, our other doctors were and, and uh, Ms. McGuire, Regina was. But uh, I think he's being tried on some different medicines now and uh, we're hopeful that they will help him. Uh, if they don't, then there are other things to consider. The other thing for those people that aren't benefited by medications, there's a lot that we can do beyond uh, also things we can do. There's depression and mental health problems that occur for people who have epilepsy, either that have been able to uh, have their seizures controlled or people who still have seizures, they need support. Uh, there's a terrible stigma that comes with epilepsy, and, mm-hmm. and we feel that we try to provide that support. Uh, I know a, a big part of uh, Regina's day is, is in supporting patients and, and families and even physicians with, with how to best deal with this, even though we can't always fix it. I, I like to say we can't always fix everything, but we can also always be kind about it if we can. That is excellent because I agree with you. There is a stigma to epilepsy. People will sometimes say, yes, I have lapses. I I, I even have seizures, Um, but they won't label it as epilepsy because it's an old word and brings to mind um, not so great things from movies, etc. But it can be helped. What you're talking about is a great message of hope. And so I can understand that the family members are anxious and um, even depressed over the the lapse of time that it took to get a diagnosis. But once you've got a diagnosis, I'm I'm guessing that you find your care and the follow-up becomes more direct at that point. Again, uh, we we try to see these patients uh, fairly frequently uh, when they're diagnosed. Uh, We don't necessarily see them ourselves, but we... Uh, work with uh, uh, other providers uh, at, at sites. Uh, we can use telehealth. And, uh, Regina, you might want to say a little bit about what the telehealth system actually um, is. Hold on one second. We only have about 15 seconds left. So let's hold that until after our break. And I'd love to come and talk a little bit more about the family and the caregivers and how you move into fully supporting the veteran and their family. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion about the Epilepsy Center of Excellence. And we'll be right back after these messages. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's Merging Network. 
Visit Ringtum or the Will to Win, and you have a strong desire to be a part of your favorite sports team, the National Hockey League might be for you. Did you know that if both goalies on an NHL hockey team are injured, anyone at the game is eligible to step in and play the part? Teams have resorted to using their coaches, team owners, and even their web designers to fill in for injured goalies. It's as simple as slipping into your breezers or hockey pants. The original hockey puck was made out of frozen cow dung. The fastest puck shot on record was clocked at 114 miles per hour. And I'd like to take this opportunity to send out a special thanks to the men and women of our armed forces serving our country around the world. It's marching Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Salt is in nearly everything we eat, and many times it makes food taste so delicious. Even though the 2010 Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends limiting sodium to less than 2,300 milligrams a day, Men's Health Magazine states that the average American takes in about 3,300 milligrams of sodium every single day. Your body needs some sodium to function properly because it helps transmit nerve impulses. It influences the contraction and relaxation of muscles, and it helps maintain the right balance of fluids in your body. But most of us are getting far more sodium than is recommended. Check out the sodium content in the foods you are eating and limit soy sauce, Parmesan cheese, bacon, smoked salmon, ramen noodles, and salami. It's time to kick the habit of too much sodium. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion uh, about epilepsy. And we're also talking right now with veteran Brian Farkas. And Brian, you carried this um, sort of undiagnosed issue for 20 years. Can you speak a bit to how this affected your family and how the center was able to help you uh, integrate that care and to make life at home, the quality of life, better? Uh, certainly, I'd be I'd be happy to. Um, well, as you were saying before, the word epilepsy kind of as soon as you say it, uh, people immediately shy away and look at you as you're some kind of freak. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wouldn't tell people I had epilepsy. I'd simply say uh, I have seizures sometime, and I'd try to make it you know give them a reason at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that kind of worked, but as far as holding a job with it, yeah. If they found out at all that I had uh, epilepsy, they immediately were like, well, you know, and they gave me some, you know, bogus reason why I immediately couldn't work for them mm-hmm. or I couldn't work for them anymore. Right. So uh, um, it was kind of hard on me and it was hard on the family as well because, you know, dad was always getting fired or you know my husband can't keep a job and uh yeah um and uh the va helped as far as you know going going to uh groups and things like that um when i got to uh the the health or the uh epilepsy clinic um 
they were very supportive about everything and, and they were, you know, they didn't look at me as some kind of freak we're going to do tests on. They looked at me as, you know, Hey, we're going to help you out. And, uh, we're going to, you know, definitely see what's going on here. Um, and that's what they did. Uh, and now that I have answers, uh, I'm definitely, I feel more comfortable. Um, and I couldn't be more appreciative of that. It, it helps in the, in, in the house here a lot. Which is very, very important. Regina, you said that you work a lot with the families and support. What do you find is the most effective means of communicating? Um, I think a lot is just trying to communicate with the, the veteran and his family that there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to live a normal, active life and to try to help advocate for them. Um, I tell the patients and the families to you know, let me know if you're having difficulties with employers, with school. You know, be happy to write letters, talk to them, educate. Um, again, I use the Epilepsy Foundation a lot. They go into um, uh, places of business and can educate people. Mm-hmm. Um, I let the, the patient or the veteran lead the way a lot as far as how much information he does or doesn't want displayed out there about his, you know, medical condition. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them, once they realize that, you know, we're accepting of them and I can tell them about other veterans who are out there at leading active lives, um, then they're pretty much willing and open to allow that. And a lot of times let them know that the more education, the better. A lot of times the reason why there's a stigma or difficulties is because of the fear and people not knowing what to do or how to act. So if you can come in and educate them, you know, yes, he's had a seizure, he needs 15 minutes afterwards to just some downtime, and then he's fine after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times it's education. We also try to provide um, patient education seminars and a lot of um, advocate groups for the families, try to get them hooked up with the patient care um, or the, the uh, family provider, um, caregiver provider here at the VA. It's very helpful because I think you're looking at something that does affect the entire family. So as you take a look at the landscape of the veterans returning and those um, who are just coming to find out about a place that can treat their seizures, lapses, spells, any label you want to put on it, uh, what would be some of the takeaway messages that you would like to share with our listeners so that they can get the full benefit of these centers around the country? Well, I think the main thing is just to to, uh, let them know that they exist because uh, it's really not as common knowledge as we would like. You know, the centers were established and and they provide very good care, but the communication system within the VA isn't always optimal, and and even a lot of physicians aren't aware that uh, these services exist, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that the patients need to be sent to the centers, but the centers are really there to support um, all the sites, uh, uh, all the Veterans Administration sites in the country, and and so these resources are are, are available. Uh, uh, We're available by phone. We offer uh, telemedicine, telehealth services for in more rural areas, and, and we we work with primary care providers, with other people to, to provide these services. The other thing that I would emphasize is that the goal of all this, the goal that I try to, to keep in mind and I think the patient should keep in mind, is the ultimate goal is no seizures and no side effects. So that if a person is on medication and having side effects, that that's 
not good enough. We need to sometimes adjust the medicine, change the medicine. Um, there are a lot of new medicines for epilepsy, a lot of new treatments for epilepsy, and, and our veterans deserve the very best, and we want to make sure that they have access to them. And the goal is, again, to, to prevent seizures. We try to prevent them completely and to be sure that as much as possible that people have no seizures. If they continue to have seizures, then we need to provide them with the resources, mental health and family resources, to try to deal with those seizures as, as well as possible so that they can leave, lead their lives uh, optimally. Uh, and there's a lot of, there are a lot of resources within the VA for our veterans, and, and we, we hope that, they, uh, uh, that this helps them learn how to get access to them. Absolutely. And I think your mentioning of telehealth is very important since there are 15, 16 centers around the country. That leaves an awful lot of the country um, not near those centers. And we know that there are a number in rural areas. So you're mentioning the telehealth. Is there a specific number that they would call or is it that they go to the epilepsy.va.gov website to find out more information about telehealth in their area? How does that work? Um, they they can always go to the website, but also their primary care um, VA should be able to let them know where telehealth exists or doesn't exist. And again, if they're looking specifically for epilepsy care, then they can just go to our website and call me, and I can help them get that set up. Or if it's not set up, you know, figure out the right avenues to get that set up. I think what you're raising is is an interesting point, though, because we talk about how some of the physicians aren't still aware of the centers as well. So in many cases, when someone asks for help, if the primary care physician is unaware of the center, um, I'm hoping that this is also passed around to your physician population, too, because if they know, they can refer. If they don't know, the onus is then put back on the veteran to seek the right help, the right care, etc. So you make a very interesting point about others needing to know about, the, the practitioners needing to know about the epilepsy centers as well. So in terms of telehealth and working with families, Brian, as you are looking at your future moving forward, you've received the care that you needed, you wanted, and I'm sure life is a lot better now that you know that there are reasons for what went on in your life. What guidance would you give other veterans? I would say, uh, well, listen, my brothers and sisters, you go out there, you don't quit, they will ultimately help you. Um, Try the website if you're a little far out and uh, can't get to these places that they're suggesting. If you go to the VA and you're telling them, look, I need to go to this place, I need to go to this clinic, um, they will ultimately help you, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the, the stigma of, well, the VA, they're not going to do anything out of the VA, they just talk this. No, the, that's not the case. They've helped me through this whole thing. Um, yes, it took a long time because they thought they had it diagnosed. Uh, but since things started getting worse, they sent me to a specialty clinic. Now they sent me to a specialty clinic. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? I do. Keep going. Keep going. It will It will ultimately come there, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, listen to uh, what what these people are saying right now, and uh, yes, it, it, it will happen. It will. Just, uh, you know, keep 
sucking it up, drive on, you'll get there. <laughs> well, I, I that's good. yeah, great point. Um, and, and that's why I'm so grateful for um, Linda and um, this network for getting the word out because so often um, people can feel like they're isolated on their own with no help and no hope. And um, this is a wonderful resource that uh, more people need to find out about. We're happy to do it. Um, Regina or Alan, would you like to add anything further? We have about a minute and a half. The one thing I want to reiterate what Dr. Krumholtz said is that um, we work very closely with our veterans, and it really is a collaboration. It's not we tell them to do this and they need to do that. We need to hear back from the veteran himself. We can start one medication, but if it's not working well, if it's causing too many side effects, we need that feedback so that we can help them. It's, it's very much, we work very closely together. It's not a, I tell you you have to do this and you go out and do this. It's very much a two-way street and we listen both ways. Yeah, and, I, and I would just, first of all, thank Brian for his, his kind remarks and for his uh, uh, participation in our programs. It's, uh, as Regina says, it's a two-way street. It's, it's uh, we can provide some things, but the veteran has to also uh, um, uh, work with us. Uh, but I would also thank the VA for the resources that they have provided. This is not this is expensive treatment. This is uh, costly and expensive treatment. Uh, it it uh, and and we we appreciate the VA providing the resources so we can uh, uh, do this for our, our veterans who who, who so uh, much uh, uh, have done so much to earn uh, this kind of care. I, uh, fantastic. I, I want to thank you all for participating today because I know that this is an issue that attracted a lot of attention and that's how we came to know about the Epilepsy Center of Excellence only to find one right in our backyard in Maryland. So it's excellent to know about these things. Thank you for sharing the fact that this is a very collaborative affair, that two-way communication is key, integrating the care with the family and the caregiver and the veteran and the service member is all extremely important to get the follow through to get continued care. I think that that is one of the most important parts with something that, as you said, you can cure 60 to 70% of those with these seizure disorders or epilepsy through meds or surgery. And so there's no need to suffer. Thank you for sharing your work with us today. You'll find out more information at uh, epilepsy.va.gov and we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your